Hey, Jim. Hello, Tracy. How's it going? It's good. Listen, I think we're going to talk about some reading today. Is that right? Oh, yes. I love reading and especially the science of reading debate that is raging across the country now. It's very fascinating to me. And so um, I thought we should talk to somebody who uh, advances the cause. Yeah. Okay. I'm anxious. Who is it? Well, her name's uh, Dr. Susan Hall, and she is part of the 95% group, I believe is the name of the organization that she represents. And she's going to talk to us a little bit about how we ought to be preparing this summer for our kids to come back and uh, to do some things maybe differently to have them um, get caught up. Right. Ready for school. Okay. All right. Let's talk to her. I'm excited about it. And you're right. Reading, kind of an important keystone to success at all levels, right? For sure. I like your background. Thanks. Hello. How are you? Good. Good. Hi, Susan. How are you doing? Good. Nice to meet you both. Nice to meet you too. We're so excited to talk with you and, and kind of dig into reading. It's We were just saying what an important like cornerstone it is yes. for everything. It really is for sure. So, well, um, Susan, welcome to our podcast and we'll just dive in now if that's all right. And yes, you our first question, which is um, how did you get into the field of reading? Yeah. So, um, Interestingly enough, I was actually started out in the field of business, and my son, uh, which was about 25 years ago, my oldest child, uh, came home from first grade and asked me a probing question in about October, and he said, Mom, why am I in the highest math group and the lowest reading group? Mm. And I looked at him, and I said, I don't know, but I'll go find out. So I went to speak with this teacher. I was not an educator at that time. And was quite surprised to learn that, in fact, he really was struggling and learning to read, came home and explained it to him. And of course, the year went on and on and on. And then finally, in the spring parent teacher conference, I asked the teacher, "Okay, so how's it going? She says he's still in the lowest reading group. And I said, well, should he be tested? Oh, no, he's not a year behind. I couldn't possibly refer him for testing. I said, well, wait a minute. You know, we're just going to wait for him to get further behind, like, isn't there anything else I could do? And she says, yeah, you could pay for testing yourself, which is what we did. And he's dyslexic. So that was the beginning of my journey uh, that got me. And I'm just like many people in this field. It's because we have our, one of our own children is in fact uh, having trouble learning to read. And I absolutely got hooked on this topic and I could not stop researching it. So finally, my husband just said, you love this you should follow this. This is your passion. I said, I don't know what I'm going to, you know, I, I, I'm not credentialed in this field. He said, go, go, go get credentials, you know, like you can do this. And one thing led to another. And so actually he joined me in forming the company that we now have and have had together for actually 16 years. So, um, which is called 95% group, but that was, that's how I got into it. That's, so what- that's great. Tell us about the genesis of the name. I, I, I know it, but I, I want you to explain it so, because I, I'm inspired by it. Yes. So um, actually, I was on a plane coming back from Baltimore to Chicago. And, um, you know, my husband and I had taken a weekend to just go together, to go away and just be the two of us away from our children, to think about 
uh, whether we were going to make this into a business. And at that point, I had already been doing consulting for quite a few years and already written two books. And um, I was trying to figure out a name that would that would indicate high expectations. And I literally, I love to think on planes because there's no phones. Well, back then, <laughs> there was no internet on the phones, et cetera, so, or on the plane. So I, I was trying to think of what would communicate really high expectations. And on that flight, I finally just, like I started with 100%, I said, oh, people will criticize it. Like you can't teach 100% of the kids to read. So it was finally like, okay, if I say 95%, people will not uh, argue with me. And I already had data from schools I was consulting with that were getting 95%. So it was a realistic number. Yeah, nice. Nice. And and I'm just going to step back to, to the pre-genesis of that genesis. And that's the story of your son. And also what an, an awareness, right? That that little guy had at that point in his life where he was able to come home and say, hey, listen, this is where I'm at. I'm math and this is where I'm at in reading. And, you know, that that in itself, we've got to remember kids know. Kids oh, know, yes. right? They know. They know. And you just have to follow those kids that are observing themselves and asking questions. And, you know, I encourage this questioning. And we were always really honest with them. I mean, we when he had his testing, we got the test results at the end of first grade, beginning of the summer, you know, that summer. Um, we explained to him, Brandon, we know why now. We have an answer for you. Took a few, you know, few months, but we, we have an answer. It's called dyslexia. And this is why it's difficult for you. And all the way along, he knew he was dyslexic. He understood it. We, he had a lot of, um, he had a lot of tutoring across the years, but he did really well from age 10. He kind of knew what he wanted to do in life. Uh He wanted to be an architect because he built with Legos like crazy. And he's an architect today. Yeah. Right. And just shows too, when we are really looking at that strengths based and take care of what we are good at and, and really help, uh, you know, our young people become the, the people that they're meant to be. But without the reading, it still is a struggle. We need to have that as a piece of that puzzle for sure. Absolutely. He could not have gone to the undergrad school and the graduate work that he was able to do without knowing how to read. And that's just all there is to it. He just couldn't have. I mean, he might have been able to do something in the field of architecture, but he would not be a licensed architect doing exactly yeah. what he wants to do. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. So what are schools going to do? Because I mean, many schools have, have been remote for part of the last year or maybe a majority of the last year. And, um, you know, kids, have fallen behind even further perhaps than we had seen previously. So, you know, I'm sure teachers are wondering and principals are wondering and, you know, parents are wondering what are schools going to do to get kids back on track when they come back in the fall? That's a great question. And I am deeply concerned about exactly that question right now. And it's all I'm focused on. I just cannot get it out of my head. So what I think what we're seeing is that the reduction in learning has already been studied by RAND Corporation. And they did an analysis and they released a report a couple of weeks ago, which has already been very widely quoted in many other educational sources. And what it 
said was it acknowledges that one in five schools were fully in person last year and one in five were fully remote. And then there was everything in between. I'm actually surprised that one in five were fully in person. As a matter of fact, more in Utah that are our clients were fully in person than in just about any other state where we have clients. Um, But what the RAIN Corporation study showed is that remote students who were receiving their instruction in a remote environment got less instructional time. There's absolutely no question they have validated that. That in conjunction with now um, in early literacy, of course, we have our early literacy screening data that we give typically three times a year and the spring data is now done and it's being it's been collected and it's starting to kind of sink in. And I just have to tell you that I've been looking at um, client data for students using Acadians, Dibbles, Ames Web, whatever districts may be giving for a really long time in my career actually since about uh, for at least 20 of the years that I've been working in this field. And I have never seen such low scores ever. And we work in high poverty schools typically. Um, Of course, some schools uh, found out that their data is better than they expected. And uh, most places it's much worse. So um, we really have a problem. And the area that's really bad is early literacy. Kindergarten is devastating. The kindergarten interview data is absolutely devastating, which means that we have these students who are coming into first grade ill-prepared to learn to read. First grade, as you know, is already an incredible uphill battle in terms of how many things they have to instruct on, how hard it is to get kids through that first grade year, and they're starting way behind. So I'm really concerned. And then I also have been seeing in different journals. So um, recently, there was Education Week reported on a sample of over a thousand school and district leaders and teachers. They conducted the survey in April. And this is kind of a shocking finding that 42% of those surveyed expect that more students should repeat at grade level than has ever been done before the pandemic. And that really worries me because there's such a body of research showing that retention rarely works, is not effective, doesn't accomplish what we were hoping. And so, um, you know, that's been consistently publicized by the National Psychologists Association and others. So honestly, this is how I'm really spending my days these days is thinking about this. And so when it comes to early literacy, so our first, second and third graders entering this fall, I think we absolutely need to review in a quick and efficient way, the key phonics and phonological awareness skills that should have been mastered the prior year because we'll have no other way. And my concern is most schools tell me, you know, it takes three, four weeks to get everybody assessed. Oh my goodness, we need to hit the ground running. And so I'm recommending to our clients that they start reviewing from day one, 20 minutes a day is my recommendation, following a really um, clear scope and sequence of how to review the prior year's key phonics concepts. And then Susan, do you see that they just sort of then pick up the curriculum and they're supposed to be working on for the current year. So they're going to be doing a little back, uh, back loading, if you will, or lifting up. And then at the same time, covering the current curriculum and increasing that literacy access, right? Yes. go. Yes. And the reason I feel so strongly about this, Tracy, is because unlike 
some other education curriculum areas. When it comes to phonics, phonics is terribly sequential and cumulative. And you can't just start your year's curriculum and ignore the prior year's phonics skills that should have been mastered. So I just don't see how it's going to work. How are people going to teach their curriculum from day one without going and filling some gaps? Mm -hmm. So yeah, it'd be ideal to get assessments first, but honestly, you can tell from your spring data from the prior year spring data. Okay, so like the first grade teachers, you can look at the kindergarten spring data and it's not gonna get better over the summer for most kids. They're gonna come in that looking just like that or worse. So we already know that if your data shows you that the prior year's spring data is really worrisome, why wait to get your fall benchmark? Start the year Mm -hmm. and I'm calling it jumpstart jumpstart with a with a review of the key phonics skills from last year yeah and, well, uh, and I know you've got a, a, a bank of resources that teachers can access or school leaders can access through your your organization the 95 percent group and um, do you want to talk a little bit about those Yeah, my concern is that to do it right, I mean, anyone could do this themselves, but to do it right, you would have had to do, you would have had to get together your teachers from two grade levels. So you'd have to have your K and one teachers sit together, your one and two, your two and three. Well, I have been asking, and I'm not hearing very many people that did that before school got out because everybody was so stressed just making it to the end of the school year that there, there wasn't the capacity to do that articulation between the grade levels that you would need to do. So while it's possible to do it, I don't really know that very many people have done it. So we actually started to get wind of this issue and we had put out a summer school curriculum and we had to cut off the ordering for it in early April to produce the quantity that was needed. And it was amazingly well-received in the market. And So I started to think about how are we going to help solve this back to school problem in the fall. So what we did is we took exactly those same summer school lessons and republished them under another name so that it wouldn't be clearly identified as only for summer school. So it's called 95 Phonics Core Program Booster Bundle, and it's called TuneUp. And we called it TuneUp because we want people to think about tuning up the prior year's phonics skills. And so we did, we have just released the product and it's, it's going to be available very soon. We're taking orders already, but anybody could do this work. It's not that what we did couldn't be done by any school. It's that what we see is that with just trying to get to the end of the school year and trying to get through this complete, you know, complete this year that was extremely hard on all of our teachers and our administrators, people didn't have time to do what I'm talking about, which is to actually sit down and figure out, because you have to, if you're the first grade teacher, you have to know what should have been covered in kindergarten and how it was covered and how to teach those skills, especially as you go up like to third grade. A lot of third grade teachers do not know as much how to teach those earlier skills. So if students walk in without them, it can be very challenging for them. So uh, the ARP, the ESSER 3 money is 
um, including a real focus on summer learning. And I'm curious if uh, you have any thoughts about even trying to pull those kids in early before the regular year starts, providing, of course, you can find teachers who have been rested, who are ready to be back and are willing to come. Have you given any thought about either using your materials or just how you would structure that time if people choose to use the money? Because some of it's supposed to be set aside for that summer learning. Yes, I think boot camp would be fabulous right before school starts. Pull them in for a boot camp and get as many lessons in before school starts. And then if you still had students that couldn't get all 25 days in before, um, then continue them in small groups if you needed to. But honestly, when we designed this, it was sort of like we probably need in many places this taught to the whole class. It's not going to hurt anyone, and it's going to ensure even before you get your beginning of the year um, data, that all students will have this quick review. But I think there are many other settings for it. You could use it like for a small group tier one. So you could differentiate in your tier one for your small group time and pull just those kids that, that you have reason to suspect need this phonics review. You could use it for before and after school tutoring, which actually the ESSER funding is, is um, noted to be used it can be used for that as well. Right. So either just everybody teach it whole class, 20 minutes a day for as many of the 20 days, 25 days as you can. Um, boot camp before they get in. And I think boot camp before they enter would be absolutely ideal. And of course, um, summer school is great. We, you know, some districts are aggressively offering some summer school, but not everyone finds it easy to attract the children, the very children who they need to be there sometimes don't get registered and don't attend summer school. Of course. Yeah, that is tough. Yeah. I have a question about older students that might struggle with phonics still, because I know that typically we end phonics instruction around second or third grade and you have materials in third grade. Um, I wonder, you know, if you have a teacher out there who teaches fourth, fifth, sixth grade, or even higher and have students that don't have phonics skills, what do you recommend? Where do they start? That's a great question. <clears throat> what we always recommend is that really it doesn't matter what grade level you are in, including even being an adult. If you are not able to decode the words, you know, rapidly and accurately, and it appears that it is a decoding issue, which can be very quickly validated through assessment, particularly a diagnostic, a phonics diagnostic, you need to have that phonics diagnostic to figure out what they do know and what they don't know. And our approach is to drill down and go skill by skill by skill and figure out what they do know and what they don't. And then their lowest missing skill is where you start. And it doesn't matter what grade they're in. If they have phonics gaps, we need to be filling those. It becomes a little more challenging in middle school and, and grades even above that, because of course, by then students should be really experts in multisyllabic words. Right. So we need to teach them with real consciousness that these students are older and we can't give them, you know, the rat sat on the mat. We have to give them other texts, right? That's going to hold their interest. So we actually recommend doing a phonics diagnostic and then starting with a multisyllabic, start at the syllable level and only go back to the really, you know, one syllable very slow if it's absolutely necessary, but try to come in multisyllabic and through teaching all six syllable types, they will get all of those phonics concepts that they need. So if possible, go that route just to keep them interested. We have to think about motivation. 
and interest levels when we're talking about older struggling readers. You know, you bring up a good point. So we started the conversation talking about how we don't want to wait for assessment where you have this whole right, two, three, four week block of time while we sort of learn our rules and, you know, we take some time there. And that's how we traditionally, you know, it's not that we aren't teaching, but we aren't, we aren't starting off running, you know, but you just bring up a really good point that without some of those elements of that assessment data, sometimes it's hard to know where those gaps are. And I'm thinking of a kid where a short I and a short E sound was enough to make that kid struggle for a very long time because there just wasn't that kid wasn't able to differentiate. So, um, t- tell me a little bit more about that assessment cycle and what your recommendations are for that check. And some of it might be formative, some of it might be something more you know comprehensive. T- tell us more about what recommendations you would have in the midst of this. We got to take off running. So I would highly recommend um, with whatever data you have is if you think phonics is a problem, which you'll know because students are stumbling over the words, they can't decode those words, they're decoding them inaccurately, they're mispronouncing them, you'll, you'll know it. Um, you'll also see it in their spelling, by the way. Spelling is hugely diagnosed, <laughs> diagnostic on phonics issues. So the minute you have evidence that phonics could be an issue, then the very first place I go is to a phonics diagnostic. Now we publish one called the phonics, um, the PSI, the phonics screener for intervention, but ours is not the only one. There are many good ones out there. Just get a really good phonics diagnostic. And so how will you know if it's good? Well, first of all, I would highly recommend that your phonics diagnostic has nonsense words or syllables. If you just have the children read real words, you don't really know if they're using their decoding skills. You're finding out they know that word by sight, but you don't know how they've read it. You can't look in their brain to see if they have the decoding ability should they need it. Because you're really trying to figure out how can they approach a word they don't know, as opposed to just can they read words. So you have to have a phonics diagnostic assessment that uses nonsense words as part of the um, assessment. Now they can also have real words in lists or real words in sentences. That's fine. That's interesting. That's good information. But if I had to give it all up, I'll take absolutely got to have the nonsense word part of it. And you can tell very quickly, usually the phonics diagnostics go in a sequence. They start with the CVC and then CV, you know, short vowels with consonant blend, short vowels with consonant digraphs, long vowel silent E, vowel teams, R control vowels. It goes in a sequence. And so you can tell exactly where their lowest missing skill is. And that's where you start instruction. I'm curious about just as, as you look at intervention. So I'm thinking about teachers, they're, they're feeling already stretched. And sometimes they feel that the gap between their most struggling student and the students that are reading at a higher level is pretty wide. And that could be even wider this coming year. So as we're looking at the levels across your classroom, do you at all ever recommend like trading or sort of like even cross grade grouping so that you're kind of trying to get those kids who might be at the same instructional level and trying to manage that? Have have you ever seen that work well or something just to try to reduce the, you know, I'm a teacher in third grade and I don't want to have nine groups, right? So what would you recommend? 
So I think that, that when it comes to their intervention time, their small group intervention time, it is a really good idea. We call it walk to intervention time, walk to learning time, walk to read. It's called a lot of different things, but it's really good to group across your entire grade level. So let's say there are four uh, third grade teachers, then they would each have a group and then you'd pull in during the same half an hour intervention block or tier two block, of the, all the other teachers who can help, the, administ- the, uh, the you know, instructional aides, um, Title I teachers, paraprofessionals, whoever else can help teach a group. With really good supervision and really good materials, you should have no problem having a lot of different resources that can teach your intervention groups. And what you'll be doing is that all four of those classrooms will be sharing their students so that there may be nine groups, even though there's only four classrooms. And mm-hmm. students may receive their small group not in their own homeroom, not yeah. by their homeroom teacher. Um, that is the best way to deal with this. Now, that's in contrast to another approach that in many other times and in places we used to see that students actually were sent to work the entire reading block, not with their grade level. And I think that has its own problems. I wouldn't want them to have their whole reading block with um outside of their grade level because you'll never catch them up and they won't get yeah. the vocabulary and they won't get the peer yeah. learning. But I'm talking about the you know, 30 minute intervention block where that walk to intervention is very important. You can share among the grade level. Yeah, and you talk about this a little bit in one of your books uh, about MTSS and literacy. Can you remind us of the title of that? 10 Success Factors. Okay. It's the 10 success factors book. Um, and I do, I have 10 different factors that are, I think, indicators of what makes um, MTSS really work well. Excellent. What about um, phonological awareness? Again, I'm going to go back to those older students because it's supposed to be K-1, right? That's supposed to be mastered. Um, but we, is it sometimes a problem with older students? And then how do you address that? It is absolutely a problem with older students. And I think that honestly, just over the past maybe two to three years have we become more aware than ever before. It's actually very easy to diagnose if there's a problem with an older student on phonological awareness. And one of the things that I I have been hoping is that the early literacy screening instruments will um, continue up in the grade levels and and offer at least a alternate form of something we could use. But right now that doesn't seem to be happening. So what we did is we put a complimentary screener on our website. You can download it, it's free. Um, You can use it with older students. We have two forms. The first one would be second, maybe second grade, maybe third, the, the, uh, we do X and Y. So X is a little easier than Y. X, they have to segment sounds orally um, within a blend. So um, say, stop, say it again without the, what's the new word, top. And then the, the more difficult one is why, and in why they have to substitute a sound that is in a medial vowel position, and that's even harder. So it's delivered orally. You sit across from a student, it goes very quickly. But if you suspect that an older student may in fact still be um, having difficulty because they never de- developed those advanced phonemic awareness skills, you, autom- you really ought to know. And providing them the kind of instruction they need can be quick, it's easy, it's done orally at first, you combine letters with it later. 
but it's actually not something that's hugely complex to deliver. So I would um, highly recommend if you have any doubts about your older struggling students still lacking phonemic awareness at an advanced level, which are the manipulation skills, phoneme addition, deletion, and substitution, download our, our screener. It's called a substitution screener. It's on the front page of our website. Just go on, download it, and give it to some students. And you'll be able to tell right away. Yeah. That's excellent. And I'm sorry to hog the spotlight here, but I just have another quick question, a personal, personal issue that I've faced as a principal. So with a cadence, right, formerly Dibbles, um, uh, we, we feel kind of happy because we get, you know, 70% plus of our students that are meeting typical progress. And yet we still have um, fewer than 50% of our students that are reading proficiently on benchmark. So how do you, as a, as a leader, as a, as a teacher, how do you navigate that with feeling great? Yes, they've made typical or better progress, which is a goal, um, but they are still not reading where they need to be. So there's a couple things to explain that. Uh, the first is that the benchmarks in Acadians, like the other early literacy screening instruments, set the bar at what is just as Stephanie Stoller, who I used to go around the country training with, she taught me well, I listened to her a ton. She would say that the benchmark in Acadians is just a, an okay level. It's really not what you would consider good reading. It's just a minimally okay. So that's the first thing to recognize. And the second thing to recognize is that these early literacy screening assessments like Acadians and the others, they are not assessing everything that you need to know about whether a student's reading. They're using indicators that are highly predictive of reading achievement, but because it's intended to be quick and give to every student, it's based on the most um, predictive indicators but it's not going to tell you everything you need to know about a child's reading. That's where those diagnostic assessments need to come in to, to fill in the gaps of what isn't happening for certain students. But I'm very thankful that we have those early literacy screening instruments. My gosh, if we didn't have them, it would be very different. But we have to recognize that they can only do so much for us. And then to learn to, you know, broaden the other types of assessments as long as we select which students we need to give those other diagnostics to. I have a question going back to the experience that everyone has just lived through. And uh, I tend to be a glass half full kind of girl. So when, when thinking about this experience, I feel from the people I've been working with, we've learned a lot about what are the essentials you know, in education and what we can let go, right? And I'm curious from your perspective, and it could be within reading, but it could also just be schooling in, in general. What do you believe we have learned from getting through this uh, last pandemic year, a lot of, you know, hybrid or remote learning? What is essential? What are the things we must really continue to grow on? And what are some things we can let go? I think that we have learned a lot of things, one, and one is that, that you know, there are certain things that we feel are so important and they're crammed into our curricula. And you know, our, each of our curriculums are so full, they're just loaded, you can't possibly do it all. 
And so we were forced this year, we were absolutely forced to come to terms with that. And in the schools where the leaders sat down and gave teachers permission to not try to do it all, but to agree as a group on what is the most important thing to cover, it went better. And teachers were less stressed, but they needed to be let off the hook. You know, you you're not required this year to teach at all. So hopefully we'll be better at keeping the big picture in mind. I also believe that we've taken a really good look at the use of technology and where it is effective and where it is not. And I hope that we are paying a lot of attention because our data is telling us where it didn't work so well. And so there's always a great place for anything we have. And there's a great place for technology and teaching reading, but it's as a practice. It's not the teaching, the first teacher, the the teacher is the first teacher of reading. If a, if a computer could teach every child to read, it would have been done before now and we would all be reading and it's not. And we've had, you know, we've had uh, all kinds of reading programs on computers for years. So I think we have to be very realistic about what the role of technology is in teaching reading. And maybe that applies to some of the other curriculum areas, but I'm not an expert on those. So I wouldn't venture to say, but I would tell you that I hope we really are paying a great deal of attention to what we shouldn't be using technology for when it comes to literacy. Yeah, great advice. And, um, you know, three cheers for those teachers who were there every day working with kids. And what a great reminder that, you know, it matters. Teachers matter. And having them be there and supporting kids and, you know, guiding them along that learning journey, it's essential, not replaceable. So that's a great- Not replaceable. Absolutely not. Teachers teach children to read and um, there is no replacement. And if we ever, ever thought there could be, we now know. There's no replacement for the teacher in teaching students how to read. It is clear as it could be from this experiment we had this year. People get so excited about technology and I love so many aspects of technology, but I think that we were running on a pathway of trying to make technology in some cases do things that it probably wasn't really ever well suited to do. So one silver lining may be that we might have gotten some real good, um, feedback about the proper role of technology in teaching kids. Nice. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, Dr. Hall. My pleasure. You've given us so much to think about and to really use to get ready for the fall, because I do think that people, Tracy's right, people ended the year exhaustion, maybe you said it, uh, and so maybe didn't think about uh, what needed to happen when kids got back and were drastically behind. And so this is really helpful for reframing things and energizing us to get that work done so that we're ready to, um, to make the most of this coming school year. And, and you spoke a lot about the resources that you have available and many, many of those resources are available for free. So do, if you are comfortable just letting people know how do they find these resources and what are the books that you have that are available as well. Uh, so when they're done taking their naps and recovering uh, and they're ready to pick up a book, uh, they know where to go. Yes. So they can go to our website, um, which is 
95percentgroup.com, and there are some free resources which are available in our at home or our um, it was our COVID resources. I don't remember exactly what we call the section right now. There are also the free resources of the um, phonological awareness screener for the substitution. And then I hope that you will check out our um, phonics booster bundle tune-up. So if you go on our website and you go to the search bar and you put in tune-up, you could go and find out this back to school uh, phonics review. And I will be doing a live webinar on it. It will be also be recorded on June 24th and that will be at noon central and there will be information out on that starting tomorrow. So anybody who wants to sign up for that, I'll be specifically showing what I think should be reviewed for each of the grade levels, first, second, and third. What a great collection of resources. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise and just sharing your time with us. We know you're very busy. Um, it's not, uh, you don't necessarily get the summers off, right? So uh, we're glad that you've been willing to share your time with us and, uh, and thank you for joining us. Thank, thank you so much, Tracy and Jim. Helpful. It was really, really a pleasure to meet you both and to have a chance to speak with you a little bit today. Same. Very good. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you.